Hey there, it's Chase, what's up? Of more than 10 years doing this show, this the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live, 10 years. One of the topics that has most consumed my thoughts is change. How do we change ourselves? How do we close the gap, change the gap rather, between where we are and where we wanna be? How do we think about that uh, um, amongst uh, self-acceptance um, and just in general, you know, change, the changing world, the changing seasons, and how do we affect change? Um, and so my next guest today is focused on the topic of change. He's been on the, the show before, um, goes way back, for those of you OGs listening, um, to the 2014 season of Chase Jarvis Live, and specifically from the back of an Uber where we recorded, I think, 16 or 18 episodes of this show in a collaboration with Uber when they launched a South by Southwest called Uber Live, where we were driving around live broadcasting um, from the back of a moving car using some cool technology. Um, and my guest was uh, had a 15-minute segment uh, uh, from that uh, South by Southwest flurry of shows. Um, and his name is Jonah Berger. Uh, Jonah is obsessed with change. Um, he's a marketing professor at the Wharton School of Business. In fact, he teaches the highest rated online course at, uh, at Wharton. Um, a renowned expert on change, on word of mouth influence. You might know him from his previous book called Contagious, which uh, is how ideas spread, N nothing related to covid uh, although it is um, at least tangentially relevant now, given uh, the world that we're occupying and living in together, cohabitating. Um, but he's also an expert in consumer behavior, how products and ideas and behaviors um, catch on. He's you know written all over the place. New York Times, been featured in the Harvard, Harvard Business Review. Um, I've seen him speak. He's a phenomenal speaker. And in today's episode, we talk specifically about change how to change one another, um, someone else, how to get them to change their mind, and how we can change ourselves, specifically through the lens of his new book called The Catalyst, um, How to Change Anyone's Mind. It was just published, and uh, it's a revolutionary approach because it has nothing to do, hear me again, nothing to do with pushing harder or exerting more energy. Instead, it's about removing barriers. If change is a part of something that you are trying to achieve in your life, as so many of you who tune in are, um, this episode is going to help. Um, Jonah is, he considers himself an academic, but he's he speaks in plain English. One of the things that I love about him um, and his writing is extraordinary. So you want to be sure to check out a couple copies of his book, Contagious, and the most recent one, The Catalyst. So uh, I'm going to get out of the way, but before we do, just a super quick word from our sponsor, and then we're going to get into how to change people's minds, including your own. Hey, quick question for you before we get into the episode. Do you feel stuck by any chance? Do you feel like your dreams are, are a bit out of reach or you've got more potential with this one precious life than you're realizing today, right this moment? Well, you know what? I got an idea. Life isn't about finding fulfillment and success. It's about creating it. So to that end, I wrote a book. 
It's a new book. It just dropped in September. It's called Creative Calling, and it became an instant bestseller when it was released this past September. Now, if you dig this podcast, then this book is the perfect, and I mean perfect, companion because it takes the ideas we discuss here in the show, creativity, entrepreneurship, how to pursue your dreams and career, hobby, and in life, and it organizes them in a super clever and incredibly practical way that will help you take action in pursuit of your dreams. So I do have an ask, and that ask is that you pick up a copy or two, or who am I getting? Maybe 10. But again, here's why. This is not about a transaction. This is about a message and a movement. You see, creativity is a force inside every one of us that when it's unleashed, it transforms our lives and delivers vitality to everything we do. Establishing a creative practice is therefore, in my opinion, the most valuable and urgent task that you can do. It's as important to our well-being as exercise and nutrition. So I put everything I had into this book. I mean everything. It's 10 years in the making. Now, I know from math and numbers that a lot of you who listen to the show have already purchased the book, and for that, I say thank you, uh, and I have a, a separate ask of you, and that is, one, if you haven't left a review, it would mean the world to me. I read them regularly, um, and I'm sharing them on my social, and I'm just so grateful to have your feedback. And thing two, thank you for being the messengers for this book. I know, as do you, that Word of mouth is the most powerful way that we learn about things in our culture. And the fact that the book, you know, went straight to the bestseller lists and is continuing to um, have incredible traction on a global level. I know that you're active and I just want to say thanks. All right. Thanks very much for listening. And now let's get back into the show. Jonah, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It seems like we meet at the most unusual of times. It's it's so true. Um, and I know that, uh, you know, I referenced our last conversation uh, at Uber, Uber Live at uh, South by Southwest a few years ago now, come, count it six years ago. Um, so it's great to have you back on the show. I know you've been very busy um, in those six years. You've, you've um, pushed out a handful of new books um, uh, among them. Um, contagious, invisible influence, and now the most recent one, the catalyst. So, a congratulations, well, and thank you. And B for the people who don't know uh, or are new to your work or want to know a little bit about what you've been up to, if they are familiar but uh, haven't been paying attention now that you've got a new book out. What what's the uh, a little bit of backstory on your personal area of interest and study and um, and just give us a little bit uh, to acquaint people who may be new to your work. Yeah, sure. So uh, as you nicely mentioned in my day job, I'm a marketing professor at the Wharton School, the University of Pennsylvania. I've taught there now for 13 years. Uh, at the moment, I teach the marketing core, so sort of the introduction to marketing, the basic kind of five C's, uh, STP, uh, four C's of marketing that you either uh, may love or, or hate, depending on your marketing preferences. Um, uh, but in addition to doing that, I also do a lot of research uh, on word of mouth, uh, social influence, uh, how to change minds uh, and drive action. Um, since Contagious came out a few years ago, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of companies and organizations, uh, everything from you know the Googles and Apples uh, and Nikes of the world to a lot of small startups. Um, and so uh, really now I spend about half my time doing academic research uh, and the other time speaking and, and 
consulting, really about kind of how do we change minds, uh, how do we drive action, and how do we get stuff, uh, whether that stuff is an idea, whether it's a product, whether it's a service, uh, how do we get our, our stuff to catch on? Amazing. Amazing. Thanks for that, that backstory. Um, and speaking of backstory, we're going to go back to what, what made you interested in these areas? I can usually trace um, our guests' primary interests back to something in childhood or uh, sometimes it's trauma or sometimes it's an area of curiosity or interest. Um, what was it for you? How did you uh, get started on this path? In which yeah, you- so... So growing up, I always loved uh, logic uh, and math and sort of experiments, um, you know, was always interested in why things work and, and how they work. Uh, I remember one year for the holidays getting a book of like L puzzles, which were little logic puzzles that I used to uh, fill out. Um, and so I always thought the way to sort of pursue that interest was traditional kind of math, uh, science, computer science. And so I went to like a magnet junior high school and magnet high school, thought I would be an environmental engineer, uh, got to college and sort of discovered social psychology, uh, realized I was in a class that was about uh, the intersection of uh, science and policy great article on how we build buildings and how that changes how we raise our kids. So, you know, when we build buildings and we all live in little single family homes and our kids can play in the front yard, but when we start living in these big apartment buildings, we can't see our kids as easily anymore. And so it changes how we our kids. And I remember being like, oh, like, that's super interesting. You know, what classes would you recommend I take to learn more? And they recommended social psychology. And so sort of kind of down uh, that path, read a book uh, called The Tipping Point that many of your uh, listeners are probably quite familiar with, got interested in the idea of why things catch on, uh, started doing research with a guy named Chip Heath, uh, who many of you may know for the books uh, Made to Stick, uh, Decisive, and, and many um, started doing research with him when I was an undergrad, uh, went to grad school, continued doing research with him. Uh, and that's sort of sort of the journey. So I've always been interested in kind of experimentation, data, uh, and those sorts of things, and love applying it to sort of social questions. You know, can we understand the often messy and confusing and seemingly non-rational social world of why this stuff, why things happen and why people do, and how by understanding that can we get good, valuable stuff to become more popular? I remember our uh, our conversation back in the car uh, six years ago now, and I was deeply inspired by how your your research pertains to the individual. And your most recent book uh, that I want to talk about, uh, The Catalyst, is about helping change minds. And um, I think when we on on the outset, when we think about changing minds, we often think about uh, changing minds of other people and um i do want to talk about how we change our own mind uh, yeah put a pin in that for a second um and shift gears and as a reminder you know you've been on the show before um most of the audience are creators and entrepreneurs they identify as as such um and while many of them work inside of large organizations they still have to be persuasive and they have to change their boss's mind or a coworker's mind, um, and I want to acknowledge that that you know cross section of our audience. But we also um, you know have a, a large cohort of of freelancers and people who are are entrepreneurs or solopreneurs in their own right. And the minds that they're looking to change are often you know that of their clients who you know they they have a belief that they have a problem and they might misunderstand the problem uh, or they need to provide a solution for that client hence they'd get hired as a designer or photographer so 
knowing that that's our our audience. Um, and also, I want to acknowledge that we do have, again, we're streaming live to a number of different platforms, and I can see comments and questions coming in from all over the world, from Chris Gillibo, uh, a selling author, a longtime good friend of both of ours, Chris Gillibo in the house, um, Matthias, um, Ryan, Raquel, Ford, Taylor, um, a bunch of folks. And, and so they may have some questions, but as we're open to entertaining those questions, first, Give us a little, orient us uh, around your new book, The Catalyst, and and why is changing minds uh, uh, a skill rather than just some default um, application in our world? Yeah. So um, I'm an academic uh, at heart. Um, uh, you know, I'm used to doing academic research. Uh, my first book, Contagious, comes out, uh, and I sort of get a chance to work with a lot of organizations. Uh, I've learned a lot uh, about different industries. I've really enjoyed that process. Uh, but what I realized along the way is that most of those companies, most of those individuals I work with, had something in common, which is they all had something that they want to change, right? So employees are change their boss's mind, uh, and leaders want to change organizations. Marketers uh, want to change behavior, and salespeople want to change the client uh, or customer. You know, nonprofits uh, want to change the world. Startups want to change industries. Uh, as you mentioned, many of uh, folks that sort of are in the creative industry, we think, we hope that if our stuff is just good enough, it'll be successful. But often, to get that stuff to succeed, we have to change someone's mind. Uh, whether it's a client, whether it's a gallery, we got to change someone's mind. And so uh, the question, though, is, is how do we do that? Because as many of your uh, listeners and audience know, we often push, we try to persuade, we pressure, we cajole, and it often doesn't work. And, and so I started wondering, well, could there be a, a better way? And, and at the core, this book uh, is all about. So I started kind of a journey where I started interviewing amazing salespeople and leaders. Um, uh, you know, for-profits and non-profits. Uh, I talked to some folks uh, you might not usually think of as changing minds. So everything from kind of crisis counselors and hostage negotiators uh, to, you know, a rabbi who got someone to announce the KKK. And I started looking across all the disparate situations to say, well, could there be a different approach uh, to change? And, and what I realized is we're kind of doing it wrong, right? When we think about change, we often say, well, how can I get someone to do what I want them to do. But we often don't think about it a slightly different way, which is why hasn't that person changed already? Right? What's stopping them? What are the barriers or the obstacles that are getting in their way? And rather than pushing them harder, how can I mitigate uh, those obstacles? So you know, when, when I talk to folks, most people say, oh, well, what do I try to do to get someone to change? I get them more facts, more figures, more reasons. Uh, if I'm an organization, I give them a PowerPoint deck. If it's a client, I give them another phone call. Uh, but as we know, that pushing often doesn't work. Right? Just as often people end up saying no thanks, in the exact opposite. And it's clear why we think pushing works. So if we're sitting at home and there's a chair in the middle of the room, we want to move that chair. A great way to move that chair is pushing, right? We push the chair in the direction we want it to go, and it goes. But when we push people, they don't just go, they often push back. Because it turns out the more we try to get get someone to do something, the more they dig in their heels and try to do the exact opposite. And so the book is all about, well, what are the barriers that are preventing change and, and how can we mitigate them? I think a good analogy is almost like a parking brake, right? So think you're, you know, you're in a car, right? You're on a, let's say an incline, you're trying to get the car to go. Um, you stick your key in the ignition, you step on the gas pedal. If it doesn't go, we think we need more gas. We rarely go, well, wait, maybe the parking brake is just up, right? And so really what this book is about is how do we find those parking brakes, those often hidden barriers or obstacles that are preventing change, and how do we mitigate them, and as a result, change minds and, and incite action. 
All right. Well, you've given such a <laughs> a gorgeous sort of overview. Um, I would love to get in. I know there's a um, five key barriers that uh, we're looking to overcome. Uh, maybe we'll tease. We don't necessarily need to walk through all of them because that'd be the equivalent of reading the book, which, by the way, congratulations. Oh, thank you. Um, Appreciate it. And for those who are curious, I, I see a lot of folks commenting about your previous work, Contagious. Um, the, the new book, The Catalyst, is available at all, all the same all the same places where you've got that, and um, probably ebook is the, the best way now in this COVID, <laughs> COVID environment that we're in. Um, but again, with that background uh, in place, and I think um, you know people at home and your your analogy of moving the chair by pushing and sometimes even pushing harder when you get resistance. Um, knowing that that's that's actually the uh, uh, I think some recent research shows that it's antithetical. The harder you push, and the more facts that it causes actually people to dig in. So um, you know, rather than us going through all of the barriers, why don't you talk about the first one, which is sort of the reactants. Stay. Yeah, sure. Happy to. And so I think that's really kind of what we're both talking about, about digging uh, our, our feet in. People like to feel like they're in control, right? Why do we do the stuff that we do? We do the stuff we do because we chose to. Why did I buy that product? Why did I use that service? Why did I um, engage in that behavior? I did because I wanted uh, to do it. But the challenge is whenever we try to influence someone uh, to do something in particular, and they end up thinking about doing that thing, they're not clear whether they're doing their thing because they wanted to or because yeah. we wanted them to. And if they feel like they're doing it because we wanted them to, they're less likely to do it, right? Uh, even if it might have been something they would have done originally, right? They may have been happy to do it if they came up with it themselves, but if they feel we came up with it. We can think about this in our personal lives probably as well. If they feel like someone else came up with it, they're, they're less likely to do it. And that's this idea of reactance. Uh, essentially, at the core, people have like an anti-persuasion radar, almost like an anti-missile defense system that kind of goes off when they feel like someone's trying to persuade them. So think about a spidey sense, right? Where, um, you know, you get an incoming call from a salesperson or, um, you know, someone sends you an email that's a pitch. You know, our barriers go up, our radar goes up, and we kind of shoot down uh, those incoming projectiles. We delete the email, we change the channel on the television, uh, or even worse, we counter-argue, right? We sit there, it seem like we're listening, but what we're really doing is thinking about all the reasons why we don't want to do what someone suggested. So think about it in your personal life context, right? When we, um, you know, our spouse says, hey, what do you want to do this weekend? And we say, oh, let's go to the movies. They think about all the reasons why that is a terrible idea, right? Oh, it's nice outside. I went to the movies a couple weeks ago. Why don't we do something else? Uh, and so what the idea of reducing reactants really is, is how do we give people more freedom and autonomy? Rather than pushing them or pressuring them, rather than selling them, how do we get them to buy in? How do we get them to persuade themselves? And so I'll pause here. I'm happy to you know, answer questions about this, but the book really talks about a couple ways to do that. And the challenge is, again, not pushing people, but get them to feel like it's their choice, like they're participating. Now you're on a roll, and I want you to keep going. Let's get into the- Okay, like, great. So I okay. <laughs> understand this. This is so fundamental. And I think there's, you know, I, I referenced it as a skill in my original question. And I think just- awareness of this as a uh, is half the battle for most people because yeah. the the dominant narrative or the dominant story that I think most people tell themselves is that if I just you know continue to give them more good reasons to think the way I think whether again it's a boss or a client um, and and now again following the uh, reactance principle part of your book uh, keep going and, and and unpeel this onion 
uh, another yeah. layer so that we can understand some of the uh, techniques that you, you suggest yeah, we use. Just to build on what you said, by the way, you know, we assume that people see it the way we do. If we just give them more information that we have, they'll see it the way that we see it. But we forget that they're not us, right? And again, we're so focused on us, we're, we're not focusing uh, on them. Uh, and so, you know, one approach uh, I talk about is, is what I'll call providing a menu or sort of guided choices. And I think this is a really simple one that any of us can use in almost any situation. So, you know, imagine we're a consultant, where we're presenting to a client, or even imagine, again, we're talking to our spouse about what to do this weekend. Um, when we give people one option, they think about all the reasons why that's a bad idea. Right. So imagine that, you know, uh, I have a new project and someone's, you know, potentially hiring me and they're looking at a couple different people and I come and I present a solution. It's not just going thinking about all the reasons why that solution won't work. Uh, it'll be too expensive. Oh, how is it going to work with our existing stuff? How do I know you're going to do a good job? They're going to think about all the problems. When you give people one option, they sort of find all the holes in that one option. And so what great catalysts do, what great change agents do is they don't give people one option. They give them at least two. They give them multiple options because what that does is it shifts the role of the listener. Now, rather than sitting there and thinking about all the wrong with what you're suggesting, now they're thinking about which one they like the best, which makes them much more likely to pick one of those options uh, at the end of the day. And so we can think about it as providing a menu or kind of guided choices. We're not giving people a thousand choices. We're not giving people infinite choice. We're giving people a small number, a select set of options, and ask them to choose from that choice set. And we've chosen the choice set, right? We've given them the options, but by allowing them to choose from that set, they feel like they've participated, like they've gotten that freedom and autonomy. And so they're much more likely to go along because they played a role in the decision. So I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. Yeah, go for it. And, and um, right now, someone who's listening who might be scratching their chin a little bit is like, yeah, but isn't this just a form of manipulation? Aren't you... Aren't you just uh, using human psychology and giving them guided choices? And it's sort of like um, the analogy that I'll use is now I'm not a father, but uh, I'm an uncle. And I know that if I ask my nephew, well, back when he was much younger, what do you want to wear today? There's an infinite number of possibilities versus like, do you want the red socks or do you want the green socks? Um, he's, you know, he, he feels empowered, but I feel as a, you know, as the, adult there that I'm manipulating the situation. And so for someone who is worried about uh, integrity and whatnot, how, how can you help us understand it, that we can still operate in integrity and um, drive uh, the results that we want to see in the world? Yeah, so this is a great question. Um, and I, there was a two-part question I heard, so I'll answer the first part and then the, the second part. The first part is sort of about integrity or manipulation, and the second part is how many choices to give people. Uh, and so uh, the book came out just a couple weeks ago, but uh, we gave some early Amazon uh, reviewers, Vine reviewers or whatever, there are some early copies. Uh, early reviews come in, many of them are positive, but there's really one strongly negative review. So I was like, uh-oh, what is this person saying? And this person is saying, these tools are really useful, but they'll be used by the wrong people. They'll be used by salesmen and manipulators and phonies to get people to do bad stuff. And I was sitting there going, well, if your concern is that these tools are so useful uh, that the wrong people will use them, I actually feel like I've done an okay job, right? Like I'll, I'll take that three-star or two-star review uh, because the biggest concern you have is that it'll fall, the tools will fall into the wrong hands. You know, I didn't invent uh, these tools. Uh, you know, I didn't create the idea that we like choices. Um, and the challenge with tools is, you know, any tool can be used for 
bad or good. Think about a hammer, right? We can think about a lot of good, useful things we can do with a hammer. We can also think a lot about bad things uh, we can do with a hammer. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't better understand what hammers are and, and how to use them. And so I certainly agree that um, I hope the right people use these tools. Uh, and when I take on consulting clients or give talks, I think a lot about who I'm giving the tools to um, uh, and try to give them to audiences that I care about uh, and find valuable. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not like um, some of these ideas aren't out there ready in disparate places. Um, and so uh, I don't mean, uh, I hope the right people use these tools, but, um, you know, my, my hope is that we use them for good, uh, not for, for bad. Um, and the second thing I would say is, is actually, I talk a bit in the book, um, uh, similar to your example with kids, you know, people use this all the time with kids. I have a two-year-old uh, at the moment, and whether it's, you know, uh, choose which color of socks or you want to take off your shirt or your pants first, uh, but it's not just kids. All of us like having choice, right? All of us like feeling freedom and autonomy and having a role, but notice what we're not doing, right? What neither you nor I were doing in that example saying, which of the 45 items in your closet do you want to wear, right? Which of the 100 things in our fridge do you want to eat for dinner? No, we say, which do you want first, your cho- your, your uh, broccoli or your chicken? Uh, you know, which do you want to put on first, your shirt or your pants? We're choosing the choice set, but by doing that, it encourages other people to feel like they got some freedom and autonomy. And notice this happens to us all the time. Right? When you walk into a restaurant, you walk into an Italian restaurant, you don't get upset that they don't offer sushi. Right? You say, well, it's an Italian restaurant. This is what an Italian restaurant offers. People always give us choices. It's just thinking about how to give people the right choices to encourage better decision-making and encourage people down the right path. So let me play it back to you. What I heard is we're doing this already, and you're trying to help us shape the way we think about it so that we can use the tool in a better way, in a more refined way. Yeah, I mean, I often think um, the best authors, when they write the best books, uh, are not uh, uncovering things no one ever thought of before, though sometimes academics do, and and that's great when it happens. Sometimes what we're doing is we're helping us better understand ourselves and codify some things that we might have seen at work in one situation, but not understand why it worked and not understand how we can apply it to a broader set of situations. So many people may go, oh, when I give my kids a choice, it works better. You know, dinner time and bedtime is less difficult, but we don't really realize that's actually a broad principle of human motivation that we can apply beyond our kids, beyond dinner time, uh, and to a variety of situations. I love it. I love it. Um, well, your art is very handy. And a lot of the ways that I like to dig another layer deeper when I'm talking to people who whether they're entrepreneurs or academics or, or scientists is learn a little bit about your process. So um, clearly, you, you've done a bunch of research with all your books. Again, very, very familiar, most uh, of deeply probably with contagious. Um, and I remember having a conversation with you about it, but what, what was your research method here and how did you uncover these things and, um, ground them in the, you know, the social psychology, um, that you're sharing with us here today? Yeah. You know, this book was actually a little bit different for me than some of my other books contagious. Um, you know, I had never uh, worked with companies really before. I'd worked with very few companies. Um, I really wrote that book for my own uh, personal academic research. It was all about kind of research that I had done or others around me uh, had done um, and stories that had come out in my class when I was teaching that material and things along those lines. This book was a little bit different. Um, this book came out of, of challenges that came up 
working with companies and organizations and individuals where tools I would usually use weren't working or approaches weren't working. Um, and so trying to figure out, you know, could there be a better way or, or a different way? Um, some of it was looking to the literature, um, some of it was academic literature, other, other folks' research. Some was digging into my own research and some more recent papers that I and others had done. And some was just really talking to a wide swath of individuals um, that think about change differently. You know, yes, salesmen think a lot about change. That makes sense to us. But I think we don't think about hostage negotiators as changing minds. We don't think about substance abuse counselors uh, as, as changing minds. And so reaching out to some individuals who think about change in a very different set of situations even folks that have written parenting books. You know, I talk to folks who've written parenting books to understand some of the tips and tricks they suggest when, when working with kids and really using that to put together a set of principles. So as you mentioned, there are kind of five barriers that I talk about in the book. That first one is reactance, but then there's also endowment, uh, distance, uncertainty, and corroborating evidence. And so really trying to kind of boil down a lot of what's out there in a variety of different domains to some key principles and some key ways to apply those principles. Um, you know, often uh, we both want to understand why something happens, but most of us also understand how to make it better, right? If, if we said, okay, we understand that reactants exist, it's interesting, but what I really want to know is, well, how do I solve that? And so, you know, everything from providing a menu, which we talked about, to some principles like highlighting a gap, where we point out, you know, a gap between people's attitudes and their actions, or, you know, asking questions rather than telling people things, um, you know, thinking about different approaches that work to solve this problem, and then really finding great examples of, of ways that people uh, have solved these problems. And that's always the fun part for me, you know, seeing the different situations where this applies. You know, yes, it applies to our kids at bed time, but it also applies to salesmen and leaders in organizations, um, and, you know, seeing some of the common themes and, and pulling them out. Yes, that, that reminds me of uh, when you said leaders, um, we're in a, a time that's unprecedented uh, here in a modern culture where we have historically in most cultures been able to move freely, um, information moves freely. And, and now we're finding ourselves, uh, many of us, in uh, lockdown, um, whether self-imposed or government-imposed. And so, obviously, on unprecedented times, um, here we are doing a remote broadcast with people yeah. across you know, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Instagram, all, all, all watching in a, in a way that we haven't participated before. But it... It reminds me that <clears throat> we're seeing great leaders emerge, um, not just in in government, because I think we we got the whole spectrum, the whole spectrum in every um, in every category. Um, but I'm thinking of leaders of organizations. Uh, I'm thinking of leaders of you know Fortune 100 businesses. I'm thinking uh, faith-based organizations. I'm thinking community organizations where people have historically gathered, and we need to both stay socially distanced but connected and so i'm really studying a lot about leadership right now and it occurred to me when i was uh consuming the catalyst that um leaders are um are a, clearly a group that you've had to have studied when we're yeah. trying to shape the minds of others so what were some of the most interesting things that you found in studying leaders and leadership um that you know, might not be on every everyone's radar. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the challenge of, of being a great leader is is similar to the challenge of, of some of the domains we've talked about already, right, where you kind of assume that there's something that's better or right that people should do it, right? So think about even social distancing, right? You know, it's the right thing to do. It will help spread, uh, you know, stem the spread of uh, this disease, this virus. But um, you think, okay, if you just tell people, here are the facts, people will do it, uh, and, and they often don't. And so I think the challenge of being a leader is, is the same challenge of being a salesman or saleswoman, the same challenge of being a parent, uh, the same challenge of being anyone else where you're trying to change minds, but at a leader, you're trying to do it at scale, right? You're not just trying to change one person's mind, you're trying to change an entire organization. And one thing I often found with leaders is they just assume, you know, hey, I write that email that has all the information in it, or I make that speech and I tell people this is important and everyone will do it. And that really doesn't work. Uh, and so I think really good leaders not only have vision, uh, have principles, have vision, they understand why they're doing what they're doing and, and what they want to achieve, but they also understand people that they're trying to change, right? That, you know, great hostage negotiators start with the people they're trying to change. They don't start with the change they're trying to achieve. They start with the person they're trying to change and understanding uh, that that person. And, and I think about a couple examples, you know, uh, related to reactants. I was talking to one leader of an organization who was trying to get people to stay late, right? So it was works in a start trying to get people to stay at, uh, late for work and on the weekend to work work harder. And he's telling people, hey, you got to work harder. And obviously everyone says, thanks, but, you know, I'd, I'd prefer to have my free time. So instead, convenes a meeting where he says, hey, what kind of organization do we want to be? That was he asks the question rather than telling people. Now, do we want to be a good organization or a great organization? Now, we all know how people answer that question. Nobody goes, we want to be a good organization. No, they, we want to be a great organization. We're a startup. We want to do amazing things. Okay, great. What do we need to do to be a great organization? Right? Solicits that feedback, asks people for their opinion rather than telling people what to do. And people come up with different solutions, right? But then once they've come up with those solutions, later when you say, great, you know, John, you suggested this thing, we're going to do this, now it's a lot harder for someone like John not to go along. Because you ask their opinion, you're doing what they suggested, and so in some sense, they've committed to the conclusion, right? When they've said they want to be a great organization, they say we need to work harder, great, well, then we need to work weekends. I didn't come up with it. You came up with it, right? And so by getting people to commit to the conclusion, you're getting them to put a stake in the ground. You're getting them to participate more likely uh, to, to go along. And I even think about this, you know, a little bit when we think about uh, the stuff with the coronavirus, you know, leaders are telling people, hey, you got to stay indoors. You can't go to bars. You can't go to restaurants. You got to do the social distancing. Talk about reactants. What are people going to do? Don't tell me what to do, right? Just like people have done with smoking and drinking and, you know, anything else, don't text and drive. You tell me not to text and drive, I'm actually going to be more likely uh, to do it. And so, you know, one thing I've talked to some people about that I think has been quite successful is rather than telling people, hey, do this, you know, think about social distancing, don't go to these places, say, hey, I'm not asking about you. What would you recommend your grandparent or your elderly parent or your child if you have a child? What would you recommend they do? Would you recommend that they go to bars and restaurants? Would you recommend that they're out and about? And everyone would say, well, no, of course I wouldn't recommend that they're out and about. Okay, great. Then why are you doing it? Right? And again, asking rather than telling. Not telling people, hey, I'm going to tell you what to do, but asking you, well, if you don't think other people should do this, why are you doing it in the first place? Which is basically highlighting a gap between their attitudes and their actions and allowing them to resolve that cognitive dissonance by bringing them uh, in line. And so what I think great leaders do is the same thing that great folks in any industry do. They understand the people they're trying to change and they use these tools to, to change their mind. Brilliant. Brilliant. I want to put a pin in this and recognize people who are tuning in from all over the world. We've got Greece and Berlin and California, uh, Vermont, um, 
I want to welcome you. If you've just joined us here, we are live with Jonah Berger, best-selling author of numerous books. And we're talking most, uh, about his most recently uh, published book called The Catalyst, uh, which was just out two weeks ago. We're here on Creative Live doing a live live conversations, uh, essentially Jonah's book tour. It's very hard to go see people <laughs> in person. So we're doing it virtually here. And I, I want to say thanks and welcome to those of us who, those of you who are just joining us. Um, we've covered a lot of ground, but, and specifically under um, reactants, this idea of providing a menu of choices, asking questions rather than prescribing the solution, and then um, identifying a gap between what people say they want to do and what the current experience is, uh, especially how it relates to leadership. Um, I want to go back to something you said not too long ago, uh, and it's about the spidey sense. And this is the uh, you could call it the bullshit meter, the, <laughs> fear, the fear of being convinced of something. Um, and, you know, I, I find this is present in um, sometimes quantities that are too high for me personally, the cynicism and whatnot, and it bugs the crap out of me. Um, but I want to focus rather than on the thing that bugs me on the, the spidey sense, because I'm a huge fan of intuition. I talk about it a lot in my book, Creative Calling. Um, and what role does the spidey sense play in um, in changing people's minds and, and how we both are aware of their spidey sense and, and what role does our own play, our intuition? Yeah, I mean, I think intuition is, is super important, right? I mean, intuition is, is in some sense, uh, the way we begin to, to have knowledge, right? We begin to recognize relationships between things. I think the challenge, though, is when we end with intuition, right? I'm a big fan of starting with intuition. Anytime I work on a project with a client, you know, I always start by building that intuition, by talking to real customers and real consumers and understanding what situation is like and using my intuition. But then it's really important to test that intuition, right? Uh, to build experiments or build situations that allow you to see whether that intuition uh, is right. Because the challenge is everyone thinks their intuition uh, is right, whether it's actually right or, or not, right? You know, in the, uh, we mentioned sort of distance is another one of the key barriers. And one of the challenges is people are very far away from you, right? Um, they may not see things the same way that, that you see them. I share this study, this great study was done by a Duke sociologist where um, he goes on Twitter and he gets people to follow people on the other side of the political spectrum. So he gets conservatives to follow um, uh, Democrats and you know liberals to follow conservatives with the notion that if just people had information from the other side, they would come around. Right? If you just knew what the other side was saying, you'd be more likely to see things from their perspective. Um, consistent with many pundits have said, you know, if we just bridge the aisle a little bit, if we just reach across that aisle to work, uh, he found the exact opposite. Right, you're sort of you know you might be smirking right now. You might be guessing what he found. Right, he found hey, you know liberals follow conservatives. They become even more convinced they're right. Conservatives follow liberals, even more convinced that liberals are wrong. Because in part, those intuitions are in very different places uh, on a football field of life. Right, our belief systems. If someone's not seeing things the same way that you're seeing them your facts and their facts may not be the, the same. And so we need to there sort of, you know, ask for less, move them in the right direction. And so I think intuition can be a powerful tool, but we think about how to test that intuition and how to bring people's intuition may be different from yours, more in line with your own perspective. So, yeah, I keep, keep pulling on that thread and uh, the political example is a good one. Um, what about when you know, presumably, if we're using these tools that you're giving us for good, as you've asked and encouraged, and I think anyone who's going to pick up and read the book will want to do, um, 
your intuition when, when you're trying to test your intuition like is do you have any, some guidance on a way to test your intuition you've, you've given us some really clear guidance on how to create a menu of choices identifying the gap through asking questions um what about uh is there some rules of thumb on how to test your intuition because i'm also i i, I believe deeply in intuition as i mentioned earlier and i'm fascinated by this idea of testing and I'm wondering if I've been doing it wrong all along. Here, so. <laughs> you know, I, and I think the challenge, by the way, right, is um, we all rely on our intuitions a lot. If we didn't rely on our intuitions, life would be a, a lot harder. Um, the challenge, though, is we also all think our intuitions are right, even when we disagree. Um, uh, and so our intuitions might be right, but they might not always uh, be, be right. And so uh, to begin to test them, you know, I think what's important is to collect some data, uh, but to think about the right data to, to collect. Anytime we think there's a relationship between two things, anytime we think one thing is causing something else, uh, if we start by assuming that's right, it's going to bias the type of data we collect. And so if we're really interested in what, whether we're right or not, we need to start by saying, well, okay, what's the right experiment? What's the right data to collect? Even if that data is talking to three people, you know, yeah. to begin to test that intuition, to see whether it's my opinion or whether it's someone else's opinion. In writing this book, for example, you know, I obviously think certain examples are, are better than others, but I didn't just assume that. I gave the book to a lot of people to read before I finished it, um, including family and friends, but also a wider circle of people to say, hey, is this working for you? Is this not working for you? What pieces of this are working for, for you? Because I might have that intuition, but I think that intuition sometimes can, can be wrong. And if we're not willing to ask others, and also if we're not willing to listen to what those others say, then the question is, why even ask? Right? If we're so sure our intuition is right, then we shouldn't even collect any data. But if we're willing, to, let's think about the right way to ask that information and then be willing to listen when we get it. Wow. Well, you mentioned um, things like distance, uh, other principles, um, and one of them you mentioned, I think it's uh, five, maybe uncertainty. Yeah. Can you give us a little color on that? Sure. I think one of the changes of change uh, is that new things are often uncertain. If we're buying a new product, we're not sure it's going to work better than if we're using a service, we're not sure that service is going to work better than the one we're using uh, already. Um, and anytime people are uncertain, they tend to want to stick with the status quo. They tend to want to stick with what they're doing uh, already. Um, because anytime we're not sure, why take the risk uh, to to do to do something new? Right? Anytime we're changing, ask people to change, they're switching costs. Uh, new products cost money. Services require time and effort. Even just people to hire or work with. Think about hiring employees, right? It's always easier to work with the people you've worked with in the past or the programs you've done in the past rather than to hire or work with, with new folks. And so in some sense, what uncertainty does is it causes us to hit that pause button. Rather than do anything new, rather than take that risky step, we do nothing at all, right? Which feels a lot safer, but it's hard to move things forward uh, if, if we're not doing new things. And so one thing great catalysts or great change agents do is they figure out how do I reduce that uncertainty? How do I make people feel more confident uh, in, in what they're, they're doing? And so there's a bunch of ways to do that, right? Many of your listeners are probably familiar with the idea of freemium. We see this all the time with, uh, you know, Dropbox or, uh, you know, LinkedIn or various services. They often have a free version and a premium version, right? Yeah, even, and many companies have even Creative Live. We we give away billions of minutes, and yet there's oh, a great in individual classes. So we're yeah we're experiencing it right this minute. 
Yeah, or even, I, you know, I do that myself, right? You go to my website, there are free resources. You don't have to pay any money to download those resources for, for the catalyst. And, and as a creator, right, I, I myself created that content, right? I might say, well, hold on, I'm giving away for free. How can I make money giving it away for free? Anyone who's ever had like a lemonade stand from when you're eight or 10 years old, you can't make money giving away something for free. At the same time, though, think about the uncertainty that the potential buyer or user has. Sure, you say your content is great. Sure, you, Jonah Berger, say the catalyst is a great book, but how do I know it's a great book, right? You would say your stuff is great. You'd never say it's terrible. How do I know? And what freemium does is it lowers that barrier to trial. It gives people in some sense a lower risk test of what you're offering because you might say it's great, but no one's going to be more convincing than themselves, right? If I go box and I've spent two gigabytes of storage using that, well, then I'm going to be willing to pay more to get the premium version because I've convinced myself it's valuable, right? If, if I'm using Creative Live and, you know, I'm getting some of the free stuff, eventually I'm going to have to say, well, I should throw a couple bucks his way, right? You know, I found the free stuff valuable. I've convinced myself it's useful. I'm going back there week after week, month after month. Maybe I should pay some money to get the, the premium stuff. But notice that principle is even broader, right? Think about a test drive in a car, it's not a freemium version, a free version of a car and a premium version. There's no two versions of the car, but a test drive conceptually does the same thing. It says, hey, consumer, you're not sure you might like this car. Well, rather than having to plunk thirty dollars or $40,000 before you see if you'd like it, we'll give you a test drive to give you a sense of whether you're going to like it or not. And if you like it, you'd be willing to pay the money. Think about free shipping, same idea. It's not a free version, a premium version, but it gives people the chance to experience the item without having to pay the upfront cost. Renting does the same thing rather than buying. And so what all those ideas do is they lower the barrier to trial, right? Anytime we're trying to convince someone of something, let's stop trying to convince them ourselves, get them to convince themselves. But to do that, how can we give them a baby version of what we're offering, a way to experience what we're offering and let them decide themselves, right? These ideas don't work if the product's not good. This is good. This is good. They'll like it and they'll convince themselves. Yeah, this is a big topic in the freelance world and the creator uh, and entrepreneurial world about working for free, for example. Yeah. And um, you know, we could have an entire show. We could have entire a lifetime of shows around the idea of working for free. Um, just to, I, I want to get your thoughts on that for a second. I'll give you a chance to to consider your point of view, and and I'll share one to you for you to either you know, align with or contrast. Um, you know, my point of view is that working for free is a great place if you're getting value and if you're creating it in the, in, at, at the same time. So if someone's, you know, if, if you go to a project and someone says, well, you know, um, or you say it's going to be a thousand dollars and they say, I don't have any money. And then you decide to do it for free just because you're sort of approaching this point of view with the wrong, um, with the wrong end in mind versus going out into the market or looking for an individual who you can work for free for so that you can develop things like relationships, things like a portfolio and things like experience. Um, and there's a host of other ways of thinking about it, but this idea for, for creators and when, you know, again, referencing the catalyst, when this idea of reducing uncertainty for people, giving them a freemium model, letting them test drive the car, um, any advice you have based on your research for, how creators, entrepreneurs should think about um, giving their work away for free? Yeah, so I, I love the way uh, you, you talked about it as thinking about, you know, uh, I shouldn't give things away for free. I should get something in return. Return doesn't have to be money. 
Yeah. Right. Exactly. That return could be many things you talked about. Right. It could be experience. It could be a portfolio. It could be referrals. Right. Many times uh, events reach out to me and they say, hey, we don't have very much money. Can you can you fly to this far away place to this event? And I say, look, if it was in my backyard and I could pop outside my house and do it, I'd be happy to do it for free. But if I've got to travel, I can only do so many things for free. And people often say, well, there's so many clients in the audience that will want to book you for for future events. That's great, um, you know. But at a certain point, you know, you have to be getting something in return, even if that thing isn't money. And so, you know, myself, I've been very lucky to intern with various companies and organizations, or work with people that have taught me many things. I did that work for no pay, but I learned a lot in, in exchange. And so, I love the way uh, that you talked about it. And, and I also think there are different situations you could find yourself in uh, where um, a challenge might come up. Right? I don't have any money to pay you is slightly different than I'm not sure if you're going to be a good fit, right? Um, you know, how do I know that I'm going to like your work? Well, then you could come up with something that says, hey, look, you know, I'm willing to do this little bit for free. And if you like it, then I'm willing to do the more for pay. But let's agree ahead of time to a contract of I'm going to do this thing for free. And if it's good enough, you'll be willing to do the rest for pay. And that's what freemium in some sense or, or lowering the barrier to trial does. It says, hey, I'm going to give you an appetizer, right? Yeah. Think about when you walk down aisle three of the grocery store and they give you a sample of smoked sausage. Notice what they're doing. They're giving you enough to try the smoked sausage, but they're not giving you the whole smoked sausage because then you're not hungry anymore. Right? <laughs> they're giving you a little bit of smoked sausage. So if you like it, you'll come back for the rest. And so if the issue is I don't have money, then I love the idea of trading it for experience, trading it for referrals, trading it for a portfolio. If the person does have money, but they're just uncertain about whether you're going to do a good job or be a good fit, we'll say, great, let's get rid of the risk, but let's agree that if this little bit goes well, we'll do more. Let's do a money back guarantee where, you know, I think, you know, XYZ is going to lead to more sales for you. Let's find out a, a way to measure that. And as long as it works, then I'm going to get compensated on the back end. There are many ways to set up an agreement um, that uh, if someone's uncertain versus doesn't have resources uh, to make it work for both sides. And so I definitely wouldn't give things away for nothing. I'd be willing to give things away for no pay, or I'd think about ways to structure agreements. So similar to freemium, you give an appetizer, but you don't give them the whole meal. Yeah. And looks like Chase is going offline. Sorry about that. I think the internet's coming back. Hopefully it'll fix it. Oh, it looks like I'm still on actually. So um, if I'm still on, I'm going to talk for a minute while Chase works his way back. Um, so uh, as I mentioned, uh, the book talks about sort of five key barriers uh, to changing minds. We talked a little about reactants, uh, talking about uncertainty, which is the idea that new things are risky uh, and that uh, because of that, people don't want to do them. And so lowering the barrier to trial front end using things like freemium, uh, renting, uh, test drives, but also on the back end, uh, think about making it reversible. So this actually is how I ended up uh, getting my dog. Uh, I'd always wanted a dog, but wasn't sure I was ready for one. I uh, was uh, visiting a, a shelter when I saw this great uh, puppy uh, and sort of played with it for a little while, but then was walking out uh, the door. Uh, and they said, oh, you look like you like that puppy a lot. And I said, yes, I do. Oh, you back? Hey. <laughs> I was just telling oh, no. a story about adopting a puppy. 
I love it. I love it. Keep going. Don't <laughs> let me interrupt. Okay. Uh, so I was walking out the door and they were saying, hey, you look like you like this puppy. And I said, yes. And they said, why don't you adopt? And I said, oh, you know, I'm not sure I'll like it. I was uncertain. I wasn't sure I was ready to have a dog. I would be home enough. And they said, oh, well, we have a two-week uh, return policy, uh, you know, two-week trial policy. You take the dog. If it doesn't work out, you can bring it back. And notice on the front end, it didn't make the dog any cheaper or easier. I still had to get a, a food for the dog. I still had to get a cage for the dog. I still had to make sure I could take care of the dog. But I knew that if it didn't work out, uh, I could bring it back. And of course, I didn't. Uh, now Zoe has been a wonderful dog for eight years in our in our home. Uh, but I wouldn't have gotten her if they hadn't lowered that uncertainty, right? If they hadn't figured out a way to make me feel more comfortable, that if it didn't work out, um, uh, on the back end, it could work. And so both on the front end, lowering the barrier to trial, but also on the back end, making people feel like uh, it's reversible and worst case, they can turn it around, uh, makes people more likely to do things in the first place. Love it. Love it. And I think this stuff is so important, specifically for those listening in our, our audience, the creators and entrepreneurs, lowering the barrier of entry to experiencing your work. Um, and that takes me back. Uh, I'm going to put a pin in uh, your most recent book here, The Catalyst, for a second, uh, and go back to uh, some previous work of yours, Contagious. Now, it's a little bit of a um, either really appropriate or ominous, depending on how you're looking at it, contagious with respect to uh, a <laughs> viral here in a, in a COVID, uh, post-COVID world. Um, but part of the your work, um, understanding social transmission, understanding um, consumer behavior is, uh, I think people people want that, especially when we're talking to creators and entrepreneurs who are trying to get their ideas to catch on, to get their ideas. Um, what advice would you give for folks trying to break through in a very, very noisy world uh, in line with your previous work, uh, uh, you know, in, in Contagious? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd say a couple things. So, so first of all, um, uh, it's become tougher and tougher to break through. I think the the good news is that uh, content has been democratized in some ways, uh, rather than there being you know two or three or five major. Any of us can create our own media channel uh, on social media, uh, but we have to build an audience that channel. We have to figure out how to engage that audience. Uh, and eventually we have to figure out, unless we're doing it for free, how to monetize that that audience in, in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and so I think the folks that have done it really well uh, understand both uh, why engaging in these platforms in the first place, but also use content uh, and other things, like we're talking about the idea of lowering the barrier to trial, to give people a chance to experience something. You know, if, if I'm an artist, well, what am I selling at the end of the day, uh, and how can I provide access uh, to it? There was a, a great um, a music artist named Nipsey Hussle, uh, who, you know, read Contagious and sort of applied the ideas. Um, uh, you're back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no problem. You said Nipsey Hustle. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, and a great guy and unfortunately is, is no longer with us. Um, but it, before he passed, he, he had applied one of the ideas from Contagious, I thought really cleverly. He realized, you know, as a music artist, what are you selling? Yes, you're selling an album, but you're also selling belonging. You're also selling being part of a community. You're also selling, you know, hey, I was on this artist or interested in this artist before other people were. And so what he did is, you know, similar to, I start Contagious with the story of a, a $100 cheesesteak, a sort of steak restaurant that to gain attention steak for $100. It's a super high-end cheesesteak. He comes out with a $100 mixtape, 
where what he does is he says, look, you know, part of the reason why you're buying this mixtape is to get access to music, but part of it is also to show that you were there first. And so he makes it limited edition. He signs each one. Um, you know, he sells them for $100 each. He only makes 1,000 of them, uh, makes $100,000 in a day selling these, gives people access to a concert, and gives people free limited edition content, right? And what he realizes, well, what are really the, the consumers buying? They're not just buying the music itself. They're buying something something else. Um, that's important as well as we try to build an audience. You know, what are the parts of the audience we're going to try to extract value from and also create value and give them some something to build that following? And particularly early on, we got to build that following if no one knows who we are. And then once we've gotten larger, then we can think about how to, you know, transition to create value from that. Sorry about that. Whoa! Sorry about that. Keep going, Jonah. No problem. I think I think we're on the twilight zone of a uh, twilight. Oh, that was amazing. <laughs> COVID experiments, part two million. Yeah, I I love. By the way, I have to ask. The background uh, you're you're in front of is amazing. Is that your wallpaper or something? That's yeah, been like I, oh, definite definite uh, sideshow, but. This it's, was it's, a custom custom wallpaper that an artist did that my wife fell in love with. Uh, so oh, she gets great. credited. Look, yeah, they are hand drawn and then uh, blown up and replicated at a hundred and ten inch pattern. So um, yeah, it's a. It, I, I didn't realize this when on, when COVID started, but it ends up being an okay, okay background <laughs> here for all my uh, remote calls. So this is, oh, sorry, good. small. Small uh, distraction there, but um, no problem. So, but this well, idea, I, so like, I, I, I think I would it. say, you know, it's been it's been great to chat. I'm happy to answer maybe one or two questions. I'm a little worried about the connection, um, but yes. I'm happy to answer sort of one or two more questions, um, and then uh, you know, uh, it was great to chat. Okay, awesome. So, um, I would say two things that uh, if I'm sitting in the in the audience and I want to know, um, one is. How do we, I guess it's a little bit of a replay, but I'd like it for a, a summary. We're, how do we not feel like uh, an imposter trying to get to change people's mind if that's part of the foundation of the catalyst is, is experiencing change? Is there something we need to tell ourselves uh, to remind ourselves that we're acting in integrity? Um, because I think that is, uh, as you, know, you, you mentioned in the... Uh, the very the one two star review that you mentioned on your book. Yeah, you know, I think um, I think about this as an academic often, right? Whereas an academic, I think, look, if I just do really good research, uh, that research will get out there and and people will read it. Uh, but unfortunately, there's a lot of research out there, and there's a lot of things people have to pay attention to, and they often can't pay attention to all of it. Um, and so, what I often think about is, you know, uh, we think marketing is a four-letter word. We think it's a bad word. Uh, we think selling is, is is a bad thing. We think if stuff's good enough, we shouldn't have to sell it. Um, but I think. Anything that's ever caught on that's become big um, has done some sort of thinking about their audience, right? Think about who that audience is. Um, even with books, they talk about this a lot. They say, hey, you know, what is the audience for this book? Um, what are the set of people you're hoping to reach? If you're a creator, you know, who are the set of people you think will buy your ideas or buy into what you're offering? And so starting with that sense of your audience um, and think about how to meet the needs of that audience, I don't see that as negative uh, in one way or another. I think that's really thinking about others and using 
understanding how change works to get those others on, on board. There's a lot of great stuff out there. You know, think about fake news and think about false information. False information doesn't succeed because it's valuable. Uh, it succeeds because it takes advantage of our, our biases. And so if we're doing great stuff, if we're creating great stuff, we have to help it get out there. We have to understand how people work so we don't get beat out by some other stuff that's not as useful. My second question and last question is in line with your point. Um, most people believe that the work stands on its own. And so part of as people look to unlock their potential, realizing that no work stands on its own, yeah. um, including your own. And so the a, a meta question to you, what have you done to help your work stand out from the, your peers in academia? What have you done uh, to create, you know, multiple New York Times bestsellers. And I think if you're willing to take your own medicine and we can hear about you taking your own medicine, um, that'll help uh, understand how, uh, maybe how to, how to better proceed. Yeah, I'll even be brutally honest, right? So uh, my first book, Contagious, did really, really well. Right? That book has sold uh, over a half million copies in 35 languages around the world. Uh, my second book didn't do so well. Invisible Influence, it's a good book. I like it. I think it's better written. Uh, but in some ways, it's a vitamin, not a painkiller. It's a nice to have, not a need to have. You know, Would people like to understand how influence is often invisible? Yeah, sure, that sounds interesting. But so do a hundred other things that I could do today. When I talk to nonprofits, they often have this problem where they say, hey, this problem is super important, right? Um, you know, ADHD is super important. Um, you know, uh, yeah, animals are important. The environment is important. Recycling is important. It's not that all those things aren't important. They are right? But the world has so many different things going on. We have to figure out how to give them attention. And so as I worked on this third book, I kind of looked back and tried to take, as you said, my own medicine and said, well, why did my first book do better than, than my second book? And while I liked writing both of those books, I think that first book was really a book that people needed and wanted. It was a problem people had. People wanted to get their stuff to catch on. They wanted people to spread their uh, ideas and products and services. They wanted their content to go viral. Invisible Influence is a good set of ideas. It's, I think, equally useful but people didn't agree. And so I thought a lot, and I think this is really hard for artists to hear, um, but I thought a lot about when creating my third book, hey, if I'm going to do this and I want it to have an audience, what's going to be most valuable to that audience? And so I spent a lot of time starting with the audience and understanding their needs. And I think in certain creative industries, particularly artistic industries, we'd say, well, I don't care about my audience. And that's fine if you don't care about your audience. But then you have to be willing if your stuff doesn't do as well, right? To the degree you want your stuff to do well, I think understanding your audience and starting with them rather than yourself is a, is a much smarter way to go. Dr. Jonah Berger, thank you so much for joining us here uh, from um, my kitchen counter to yours. Uh, I want to say thanks so much for your time. I want to say, uh, again, congratulations. And for those who've been tuning in from all over the world, we were having, again, people from Ger uh, Germany, from Budapest. We've got, I mentioned earlier, Vermont, Brazil, um, from a global community. I want to say thank you so much from the Creative Live community in particular. Um, thanks for sharing what it is that you've done. Your, your latest book, The Catalyst, um, I wish you a ton of success. Um, and for those who are interested in picking up the latest book, it's all available for Amazon, of course, in this in world of instant delivery and where um, we're locked down, uh, probably ebook would be an immediate solution. That you can check it out and be reading that tonight. Also, of course, we talked about um, Contagious, your first book that you just shared. Um, Netherlands is making sure that we know that they're on listening as well. So truly a global audience. 
Um, what is the best place for people or people to uh, track you, the human, on the internet? Do you like to steer people toward one of your social feeds? Um, what is what's best for you? Well, so first of all, I want to thank you so much for having me. It was great to chat again. I know it's been a couple of years, uh, and, and uh, but thank you so much. It was it was great to chat. Really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, best place to find me uh, is just my website. So Jonah uh, J O N A H uh, Burger B E R G E R dot uh, com. Uh, I'm also at J One Burger uh, on Twitter, and you can find the Catalyst wherever books books are sold. Amazing. Uh, wherever you are in the world, let's give a shout out to Dr. Jonah Berger. Uh, round of applause for you stepping in to, uh, from your living room to ours. Um, I want to say, um, stay well, stay safe across our, this crazy changing time that we're <laughs> all a part of right now. And, uh, good, sir, I, I, I bid you a good day and continue success with uh, your work in the book. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show here for the second time now. Uh, five years later. Thanks for coming back. Thanks so much, Chase. Really appreciate it. Hey, that was an awesome episode. But before you bounce, just I got three quick thoughts. First, thank you for being in this community. It gives me so much juice. I can't even tell you so much juice that when I hit publish and this show goes out into the ether, that there's an amazing community of like-minded people just like you consuming and sharing the show. So thank you. Second, it would be huge. It would mean the world to me if you left a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Now, we're regularly featured at the top slot there on Apple's podcast page and others in Spotify, etc. And that's because of your reviews. So if you've ever wanted to uh, lend a hand or you got some value from me in the past and you want to pay it forward, that would be amazing. And then lastly, it would also mean the world to me if you shared the content that you get here. Whether it's a screenshot or a photo of where you're listening, anything via Instagram stories um, or any other social feeds, tagging me and the guests. Now, I repost this content and your comments all the time, so I would love to share your shoutouts in my feed too. Um, not only do these shoutouts uh, are, are they good for you and me, but they also help us book amazing guests because they see the reach that you cultivate. This is a way for you to help contribute to the show. So, again, I want to say thanks. I'm just at Chase Jarvis. You can use at Creative Live as well. And the guests are easy to track down because they are, well, they're usually quite well-known people. Um, but again, thank you so much for listening. I'm looking forward to being in your ears again, hopefully tomorrow.